Welcome to the Heroes of Reality podcast, a podcast about the game of life and the hero's journey we all experience. Let's jump in with our host, Dylan Watkins, as he introduces today's guest. Welcome adventurers, Dylan here. And on today's podcast, I have Dr. Graham Norris. He is an organizational psychologist focusing on the foresight and future thinking. He spent 20 years living in Asia, including decades as a journalist in Taiwan, Singapore, and Japan. Most recently, he worked in marketing consultant and communications in Beijing, China, before moving back to the UK. He holds an MBA from Hoyt Watt University, pretty sure I mispronounced that, and studied the impact of rapid change on Chinese knowledge workers for his doctoral research. His passion is helping people cultivate a healthier attitude towards the future. He is now the COO of Super Trends Institute, a global learning platform that encourages future thinking so its members can make better decisions and generate more ambitious strategies. So without any further delay, I'd like to welcome Dr. Graham Norris. Hi there, Dylan. Hey, doctor, how goes it? I'm pretty good. And yourself? I'm doing great, brother. I'm doing great. Excellent. Yeah, you're in the UK right now, correct? That's right, yeah. I'm about uh, 30 minutes west of Heathrow Airport in a place called Maidenhead. Oh, beautiful, beautiful. Well, thank you for making it on the podcast. I'm, I'm glad to connect, and I'm, I'm really excited to chat with you. Yeah, no, I'm looking forward to it. Beautiful, beautiful. So, uh, organizational psychologist, can you please explain to me just a, a little bit more uh, how, uh, how you got into the space of being an organizational psychologist? What is the passions and interests, and what was your origins of that? Uh, well, that's a good question. So, I was living in China. Actually, uh, I moved there in 2010. And um, I was uh, really fascinated by the by the pace of change there, uh, and it was it was actually kind of uh, infectious in some ways. You know, just this sense of urgency to sort of grasp the moment because um, the economy is opening up and uh, a lot of really a lot of economic activity there. And so I started doing an MBA, even though I never had it in my mind to to do an MBA. But I just sort of felt this urge to to learn and, and try to be engaged with this this sense of urgency. And during that, I, I started getting interested in the, in the psychological aspects of that, really learning about myself and how other people worked. And so I developed that into a, into a doctorate, subsequently, looking at uh, change and adaptability in Chinese knowledge workers. So how this really rapid change, how that really affects people uh, and how they can understand what's happening around them and break through all that noise. Um, and so that's how I then moved into organizational psychology out of marketing and, and public relations, which was what I was in before, and, uh, and, and then moving further into looking at, at the future and how people can use foresight and the tools of foresight to, to better adapt to their present. That's awesome. So with that, what do you think are the, the cultural um, causes to, to really have the, the Chinese knowledge workers have such a rapid um, embracing of future technologies? Like what caused them uh, and culturally speaking, to really have that um, those traits. Well, I say it's not really necessarily that they have any particular traits. I would just say you know they are a product of their time. Mm -hmm. So really, you can look at what's happening in China. Is you you have several generations of experience in the West compressed into a single lifetime in China. So some people may be brought up in very, very humble beginnings, um, you know, maybe sort of 30 or 40 years ago, um, now have mobile phones and internet and nice apartments and cars and all these other things. So I think that's just a product of um, technology as 
they're experiencing it now in an economy that's that's being opening up very quickly. Um, it simply wasn't this kind of rapid change wasn't happening in say the UK or the United States at that time. The the pace of technological change was much slower, um, and so I'd say it's it's really just a, a, a they are a, a result of particular time in which they're living. Um, but we can also see it in the West, some some people now entering the workforce, for example, you know, they're, they're likely to go through many jobs, maybe even switch careers several times um, before they retire. And of course, you know, a lot of people talking about maybe never retiring and never dying. Um, but that's quite different from previous generations. My, you know, my father did the same job his entire life. Um, so it's, 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 it's really a, a sign of the times, if anything. And then uh, have you noticed cultural differences, say, between China and Japan and we'll say the U.S. in terms of their ability to adapt to this type of change? That's a, that's a good question. And actually, originally, I wanted to do that kind of comparative study um, mm -hmm. between uh, various countries. Um, I would say it's, it's very difficult to know. I'm generally the, a person that would say that culture is really a veneer. Um, and the people are generally very, very similar. Uh, obviously, we have, you know, separate traits and we're all individuals in our own way. Mm -hmm. uh, and culture is really, I mean, it's been described as the sort of, uh, was it the software of the mind or something? It's really just um, um, how, we, uh, how we interpret our experiences. It's not really changing the hardware. Um, I would say, you know, Japan also went through periods of quite rapid change in the 70s and 80s. Um, where they probably had similar um, kinds of experiences, but probably not as in that accelerated way um, that they have in China at the moment. Um, you know, Japan, having lived there, I mean, it's certainly quite a bit different culture from other developed economies that I've lived in. Um, but it's difficult to see. Uh, be difficult for me to say how uh, that's impacted their their approach to change. Simply because it's already a very advanced uh, developed economy, so. You know, it's, it's sometimes the case. It's difficult once you once you reach the edge to keep on pushing further and faster. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, looking at Japan, those are places. I was I was there for a little while, and uh, you can see that it's a really interesting blending of super old technology, super ancient like culture with cutting edge technology, and they they merge it well together. And there's this kind of um, interesting ability to be very groupthink. Right versus like in the U.S., we're very individualistic, right? So it's it's interesting how those psychological effects and how you you're right, everyone's an individual, but how that the culture affects the actual way that you interact with people, social pressures and such. Absolutely, no, it's fascinating in in, in Japan it, it, how they have taken their you know the original Japanese culture, the threads of that, and how they sort of manifest themselves in uh, in in modern Japan. Whereas in other societies, you know, you, you know, you drop or discard a lot of old culture um, to embrace something uh, new about uh, uh, the present and the future. Uh, whereas, yeah, Japan is it's interesting how that's translated into this kind of postmodern culture. Yeah. So it's interesting. The things that you study right now is really helping people adapt to this future-focused mindset, which is, you know, this ability to be comfortable with the uncomfortable changing times, like. In terms of that, it's because it is the times in our ability to adapt. I mean, what do you really think? And looking into this, are some of the the, the mindsets or skill sets that really enable someone to adapt to changing times? Sure, I think um, it's that, that's a big question. <laughs> 
they think about how to organize that. Feel free, feel free to unpack it however you like or break off a piece of it. We'll go back and forth. I know it's the main thing that you do. So it's kind of like, tell me, tell me your whole life story in a sentence, but you know. Sure, sure. Um, I, you know, so humans, I mean, we really are the only animal that could really productively think about the future or engage in mental time travel. So we can consider the past and think about the future. Uh, other animals aren't really uh, geared up to do that to any great extent. Um, they're really stuck in the present. So we have this capacity to consider the future, but it's, it's far from perfect. And it was developed, you know, evolved um, over a long period of time, but also mostly during periods where we only had to think about, you know, relatively short term. So, for example, if you think 10,000, 20,000, 50,000 years ago, there wasn't really much point thinking more than a year down the road. You might have to think about it, you know, the, the, the following seasons, um, but it wasn't really useful to think five years down the road. So in that kind of situation, if you have a problem, if you have a decision to make, you can very quickly get an answer because you can exhaust these sources of information quite quickly. You may have a look around, you may ask someone, maybe ask the village elder, and that's it, you're done. You've got to pull the trigger and accept the consequences. Now, in modern society, if you think we have to make a lot more decisions um, a lot about things that are, have uh, impact even further down the road, have a lot more longer term influence that you need to consider, and you have to have infinite, almost infinite amount of information on which to make, base those decisions. And that is quite overwhelming because you even have to make a decision about when you've got enough information to make the decision. Um, and you could just endlessly spin the wheels on these things. And you, you can feel the pressure to say, well, you know, it's, it's a strain. It's a mental strain to think further down the road. It's much easier to think about later on today or tomorrow than it is 10 years. It's much more difficult to imagine that 10 years down the road. And in fact, our brains even regard ourselves 10 years you know, in the future as a different person to the one that they're thinking about today. And so with all of this, these psychological stresses, yeah, it's, it, it's, it's a struggle. And I would say one of the, you know, uh, one of the main things people can do to sort of get their arms around that is to accept the uncertainty um, by strengthening our ability to, to pay attention, to concentrate. I would say attention is really our only resource, you know, even more important than time. And um, because you can spend time anywhere you want, but what you're focusing on, what you're paying attention to is your experience of that. Uh, and so I know a lot of people may think sort of meditation, all these kinds of things are a little bit, you know, woohoo or whatever. Um, but it really is, uh, you, know, I, I, you know, I talk about hard mindfulness because it's not a soft skill. It is, it is the skill that you can bring to bear to, to, to what you're doing, making decisions, thinking about the future. Um, so that means having the discipline, the mental discipline and strength to be able to look into the future a long way and to make good decisions about that in the present. So I'd say that's probably the number one. There's lots of other ones as well, but uh, that would be the number one where you'd, where you'd start off. It's so funny. You're, you're absolutely right on that. You're, you, there's this weird cognitive dissonance you get when you're like, oh, s screw future me. I'm not worried about that guy. He's got, I'm not going to worry about that. I'm going to, I'm going to pleasure myself right now. And I'm going to do whatever I want right now, because this is me. And you don't, and you know, it has negative consequences and effects in the future, but you have that disconnection between those two points. So, so how, how does hard mindfulness and, and this mental discipline cause those things to be re reconnected? Like what are, how does that actually work? And, and what is it when you're saying that, what is the habit or behavior that they actually do on a daily basis to cultivate that? 
Well, you, so you're really talking here about sort of developing good habits. And so there's, there's a lot of, um, you know, sort of research that goes into, you know, how, how to create good habits and try to give up um, bad ones. I guess, um, you know, one of the things is to make decisions that, uh, that about your future when you're in a good state. So, for example, you don't uh, make decisions about what you want to eat when you're hungry. So you're never going to make a good decision about that. Um, and so it, it, it's, it's things like that. I, I was reading a book recently about, um, you know, how, what our minds are really geared up for is, is not necessarily, um, it's not really thinking, it's really predicting. And it's all about the budget, you know, the mental budget about your physical processes. And so it's about, you know, appreciating um, what you're going to be, you know, uh, your, your, how your body sort of responds to the environment and how it's trying to make predictions about, you know, what kind of resources it's going to need in terms of energy and how much effort it's going to be putting into things and what kind of return it's going to get. So, for example, the, 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 the example they gave is if you're thirsty, you drink a glass of water and then immediately you think and then immediately you don't feel thirsty anymore. But actually the water doesn't enter your, really your bloodstream or anything until about 20 minutes later, but your brain knows we're all fine now. So it's about appreciating some of those those aspects of um, uh, of, of how the body works. There's another um, there's another interesting um, sort of line of research. I forget the name of uh, the the technique now, but basically, you can envision the future. Say you want to write a book, so then you picture yourself having written the book, and you're holding the book, and it's published, and everything's great. So you have this picture, and some people think that that is motivating in itself. But there's also some thinking that says, actually, the more you imagine yourself having written that book, the more your brain thinks that you've already done it. And when you come to some obstacles to do with writing that book, your brain's like, you know, what the hell? I, you know, I didn't sign up for that. I signed up for having written this book. Yeah. And so then it becomes even more difficult to, to, to overcome those, those obstacles. So it's actually more effective to, yeah, okay, imagine yourself having written the book and holding the book, but also imagine, okay, what is it like to sit down and write a thousand words day after day after day? What is it like to have to write your proposal and get it rejected and, and, and everything else? And once you consider those as well, then you have a much better chance of picking up that habit of writing the thousand words every day to get you to the, the objective of writing the book. So that's, that's, that's one thing to, uh, to consider. That's awesome. It's really interesting that you talk about that because you're right. Is you you have this humans have this natural industry. So for example, um, I want to lose weight, so I'm going to buy this program online. You're like, great, bought the program. I'm not going to go through it, but I bought the program, so I feel good. And then that feeling goes away because you already have scratched that itch psychologically. That task is done by just by taking that action. But it's really the process, the habits, and things like that. So instead of future thinking about oh this is what this is what's going to feel like to have this reward you're more like okay look for the situations that suck and really focus on those moments and embrace the moments of how they suck and really say okay this is what i'm going to be and this is what i'm going to be doing and 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 settle in with that emotion so that when that comes you're not blindsided by whether the monotony or whatever whatever your your monkey mind wants to do to get away from that emotion which is really cool thought process i've, I've never heard of someone talking about looking at the most painful spots and really thinking about them and just going, yes, that, that is what I'm going to be doing because that's going to get me. It's, it's creating a new, it's creating like a new narrative and relationship with those difficult conversations and, and, and what you're going to be coming up with. So that's really, that's, that's really an interesting thing. Do you know the name of the book you were, you were reading? 
uh, well, th that one comes from a book called Perspective Psychology, um, and uh, it's by uh, the, the 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 author of that particular bit is uh, Gabriel Ertinger, I think is how you pronounce the name. Sometimes you never hear never, never hear these names pronounced, but uh, yeah, it's a it's 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 an academic book though. Um, it's not a, it's not a light read. But uh, have you what, what what kind of what kind of good habits have you picked up, and how did you manage to do that? Um, so I mean. There's a lot of ones I pick up throughout the times. Uh, one of the ones I pick up, I have a solid morning routine, right? So I go through that whole process of like making sure my mind's clear, journaling, what, what you would expect, green drinks, exercise, all that stuff. And then I, I nighttime stack at the, in the evening times with a, a habit journal. So I track all my habits in the evenings to make sure that I do everything that I need to do. And I go through the process. And so I kind of, I kind of make a list of all my, my big goals and I break those goals down into, into what are the daily habits I need to do. And then I check those off at, at the end of the night. And so I, I keep a process of that to make sure that I'm actually stepping through what I need to do. And if I see a through line of me not doing the things I need to do on my habits, I go, okay, what what action do I need to take to propel me in the direction that I need to go through? So does that, does that make sense? Yeah, no, that's great. That's great to have that kind of uh, uh, discipline. Again, actually, it's, uh, it's not a very nice sounding word, right? But discipline can get you, get you a long way. <laughs> it's and. Uh, Unsexy, unsexy necessities or necessity neededs. Um, let me ask you a question about this. So, uh, organizational psychology versus psychology. What is the difference between those two? I mean, it's a, it's a group of people, right? Versus an individual. How do you how do you treat them different, and how are they how are they the same? Uh, well, actually, so uh, some aspects of organizational psychology are groups, but it could also be uh, regarding individuals. Um, and I would say psychology traditionally was looking was, was uh, particularly clinical psychology was looking for problems um, and so it was, it was all about you know helping people with you know mental challenges um, and then of course um, along came positive psychology so it wasn't just about trying to help people you know out of uh, you know out of despair it was about you know how can we take sort of you know I don't want to call them normal people but anyway people of, of um, you know average disposition and take them to somewhere even better. Um, and so, uh, and, and so that was sort of for the masses, if you will. Um, for an organisation, it's, it's, it's simply a context. I mean, a, a lot of the principles are, are largely the same, um, but it, it tends to boil down a little bit more down to you know, not happiness but performance. Um, so, you know, a lot of it's about assessments. Um, so, people entering organisations are they going to be are they gonna, are they going to fit basically? So, fits a, a common kind of word there. Um, you know, people going for promotions, are they going to be able to perform at a, at a different level? Yeah. So, uh, you know, and that can lead into coaching and all kinds of other things. So it, it, it's true there is more of a social aspect to, to that because the performance usually will include, uh, you know, their relationships with other people. Um, but it's, uh, it's, it's based on the same sort of, you know, basics of what's going on in an individual brain. Mm. How do you create psychological safety so the people at work don't lie to you? <laughs> it sounds like you're reading that one out then. <laughs> well, like, oh, uh, this. oh, fill out this assessment. Tell me what you really think about your boss. Everything's great. I love this. The world's awesome. No, can I move on? Because they're going to tell you what they, they what they think you want to hear. But the hardest thing is getting through to psychological safety to actually create the truth to have that come out. So how do you create that in an organizational setting? Sure. I, I, I It's not a sort of area of expertise for me. Um, so and I'm sure people are people have written about that in, in, in some details. I, I would say it's it's not probably uh, uh, as 
complicated as people make out. I, I, you know, I would say that, you know, if you have a relationship with someone, um, you know, if you have a friend, for example, and I don't want to pretend that friends and co coworkers are exactly the same, but if you have a relationship with a friend, um, you know, the, the better that relationship is, the more you nurture it, the less surprises you're going to get from that friend, right? That person's not suddenly going to go and, you know, smash up your house or something. And I would say with your coworkers, you know, and you wouldn't find that a chore. You wouldn't say, how do you create psychological safety with your friend, right? Mm. Now, with your coworkers, because you don't necessarily choose your coworkers, yeah, you're going to have a wider range of, you know, kinds of relationships you have to manage there, um, and particularly if you're a supervisor of some description. But if you're paying attention to what people are saying and doing, um, and if you care about what they're, you know, uh, care about these people, even the ones you don't necessarily particularly like personally, then it, you, you shouldn't be struggling to create an environment where, you know, people are comfortable to, uh, to share with you. And of course, some of them will never will be. You know, some people are really about, okay, works, works, and the rest of my life is the rest of my life, and I'm not going to share, even though, you know, maybe my personal life is influencing my work, but that's my problem. Um, whereas other people, more and more, you see the case, you know, okay, th these things are all a little bit sort of blended up. So um, so I, w I would say it's it's really a matter of, of common sense uh, as much as anything. Mm. Yeah, well, sometimes... Probably massively oversimplifying it. Yeah. And so someone's written a book about this. <laughs> I've uh, books written on all topics. I was just curious from your perspective, just because a lot of times people want... Um, sometimes they sit in the uncomfortability of the situation. You're trying to... You're trying to improve an organization you're trying to help them get to one place but they they don't want to actually deal with it so they'll tell you what they think you want to hear right and so in order to in order to actually get to the truth of the matter of what's going on it's a very difficult thing in an organization even for yourself i mean you psycho psychologically wise you have survival patterns and situations where you're actually you know you're you're you know you want to get across to some chasm but there's some sort of like underlining narratives preventing that that progress so i was just curious if you had any systems or frameworks of things for actually creating that type of because that's really what it is you need a safe place to really let loose and be to be like open and honest and vulnerable to get to where you need to go and so that's why sure you know. i mean i there was there was actually a thing i learned uh, quite a long time ago actually before i got into any of this um called situational leadership um and that's really about and i found that really powerful in terms of um basically you, you have people uh, uh if you're a supervisor then uh, it's basically a structured way of finding out for any particular task how the person feels about it. And so you look at their competence, you look at, you know, have they done similar things before? Do they, have, do they know what they're doing? And then how, how um, motivated are they to do it? How interested, how yeah, confident are they feeling about that? And it's basically a, a tool to have a structured conversation about these things specifically. I found that amazing. I, I had someone who was working for me. And um, she was supposed to be writing this press release, and, and uh, she was she was from California, a very bubbly person. And so every time I asked her, she was like, "Yeah, yeah, I want it. Yeah, it's, it's great, you know." But then day after day, it wasn't happening, and I was like, "Okay, this is a bit of a red flag." So I sat down, and we had this very structured conversation about this thing, and then you know it all comes out. It's actually she has no idea what she's doing, uh, and she doesn't really feel confident about it at all. So. Um, in the context of the office, even though she's you know, normally quite an open, sort of positive person, um, but actually she was a little bit kind of, uh, for whatever reason, kind of kicking it down the road or covering it up or, or, or whatever. So to actually just sit down and, and, and just to have that conversation um, around that was very, really very, 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 very powerful. And I've used that many, many times since. Situational leadership. It's, it's, a, awesome. it's a fantastic tool.
Awesome. Thank you for that. And that's actually a really good point because, yeah, I mean, people want to show up, they want to do the best, they want to contribute, but then they have these underlining, you know, belief patterns or whatever around, I don't know what I'm doing, just smile and keep moving forward. And sometimes as parents or other things, you do the same type of thing. I know where I'm going, but you don't. <laughs> and it's very yeah. difficult to kind of communicate that. With that, I mean, what are, you know, what are some of these, what I would call threshold guardians, you know, preventing people from adapting and, and really getting to where they want to go, whether it's the, the communication or embracing the skill sets and mindsets. What do you think are, are some of the, the typical roadblocks that people face um, as they're trying to um, become who they want to become, whether for an organization or for themselves? You're fascinated me. They're threshold guardians. I've not heard that before. Where, where, where did you get that from? What's, what's that about? So, so this podcast is all based on the hero's journey, right? The hero's journey is a narrative story arc created by Joseph Campbell. Joseph Campbell was a dude. If you're, are you familiar with Joseph Campbell? No, I'm. Uh, I'm familiar with the hero's journey, not intimately, but it's, uh, it's, yeah. yeah, it's it's the the dude who in, not in, yeah he compiled it. He went around and studied mm -hmm. all the myths, religions, and cultures all around the world, and he realized that there was the same narrative arc of people going around. And saying, oh, okay. And there's all the same types of stories. Uh, young person, you know, leaves their community and goes, sets on an adventure, goes and he battles threshold guardians to really mm -hmm. go. He finds a mentor, someone who gives him a superpower, an ability, a weapon, a tool to do battle, fights and fights and fights. He goes where he almost dies, loses his, you know, maybe feels like he's going to die. He has a death of an ego, fights a dragon or something, gets the Holy Grail, comes back, brings it back to the community, sometimes accepted, sometimes rejected, and then, you know, goes off to be a mentor for other people. It's a story as old as time. It's something that we love. It's something that is innate in our human psyche and consciousness. Um, and so, you know, along the, the path of human transformation, you know, you're going to battle threshold guardians, whether external or internal, right? And so along the path with these people that want to actually be better for the organization or for themselves, they're going to battle threshold guardians. And that's just the terminology he created. Uh, Disney, mm. Lucas, everybody else said, that sounds great. Let's make a billion movies about the same thing and then just change the title over and over and over again. So Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, all of it's based upon the same narrative. It's different, you know, zigs and zags along the path. Sometimes it's a group, sometimes it's individual. But essentially, that's that's where the terminology comes from. Got it. Got it. Thank you for that. Yeah, threshold guardian. I quite like it. Um uh another big question what kind of threshold guardians uh do people face you're talking about in, in the workplace or yeah, in the workplace so they want to get mm -hmm. to where they want to go they want to transform organization you know organizational psychology you know what are the typical threshold guardians or challenges that they face internal or external um that um that prevent them to get to where they want to go So I would say uh, that's another that's another interesting question. I would say um, I'm trying to think. So some of the work I do with a bank, um, you know, I talk to uh, a lot of people there, and um, it, it's it, it's really managing the transitions. Uh, f f just for these this group I'm thinking about, um, particularly the trans particularly the transition from an individual contributor who's just doing their thing. Up to a people manager, that transition is 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 quite a it's quite a massive one for people, and I would say a lot it's still kind of neglected about how that transition happens. So maybe people get some training, maybe they don't, and it's true a lot of it is a, is a bit about the field, but still there are a lot of tools and ways of thinking about things, such as situational leadership, to help them make that transition. 
mm. um, and and knowing the important things because you know it's unless someone tells you a little bit about it then you think okay i've got some power and i've got some authority but you know what am i supposed to do with it you know what do people expect from me um and unless you've had a fantastic leader to learn from then you're gonna you're really gonna struggle to lead other people so that, that's that's one of the things i see and then at another level up yeah is is kind of the networking aspect um is is having good reliable networks you can you can you can rely on to uh, get you wherever you want to go next um, because it really becomes a lot more about the relationships. And so, and, you, and you've got to do that in an authentic way. I mean, some people talk about sort of visibility and doing this kind of thing, 80, 20 rules. You spend 80% of your time doing stuff and 20% of your time, you know, telling people about it and promoting yourself, um, all this kind of thing. And, you know, people have got all, all, all different types of tactics, but being genuinely useful to people, Mm-hmm. and and having conversations uh, and and finding out what's going on and investing the time to get out of your stuff and, and really talking to people to find out what's going on and i think that's that's probably the other big the big uh challenge those are those are good ones i mean if you look at that i mean all of it involves people and other people and communicating with other people and you're talking about the going from an individual who's probably it sounds like they're good at their job it's like the difference going from a, a salesperson to being a sales manager you might be good at selling, but you might be bad at telling other people how to sell and or manage them in a way that is effective, uh, effective being both causing sales to happen and having people feel good about you driving those sales systems forward. So because you can you can cause burnout or other things. So it seems like a lot of that's a switching from a technician of a thing to actually being a leader, which are not necessarily the same thing. Absolutely. And you see some industries where this is a big challenge. For example, journalism. So I, uh, I used to be in, in journalism, and reporters, and 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 to some extent editors. You know, in general, there's nothing about being a reporter that indicates that you're going to be a good people manager. You're going to be a good leader. Nothing. Yeah. There's no yeah. qualification there at all. Yeah. And yet, and yet, the organisation I used to work for, almost by definition, the CEO of the company would would have been a former journalist, a former reporter. And, you know, it, 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 it doesn't. And I've, I've met reporters who were kind of thrust, in, thrust into leadership roles and hated it. Um, and they were, they were lousy managers because you know, they just weren't interested in it. Um, the oil industry is another one. Um, you know, my wife yeah, used to be in the oil industry. And it's the same. You know, those are engineers. Engineers are, you know, very, you know, numbers-oriented <laughs> people. They're not people people, right? <laughs> they have... They have very high, you know, in their cubicles, they have very high walls around their cubicles. They're, they're, you know, they're not there to kind of, you know, it's not a newsroom where you're, you know, throwing stuff around. It's, they've got very high walls. And so they, they don't make necessarily that great managers. So there's a lot of industries like that. It's funny. They, they, they love what they do. They just don't love people. And that's the yeah. <laughs> I've never heard of very high walls around their cubicles, but I, I can, I know that because, you know, a lot of the development spaces that I'm a part of that they're like, just let me do my job. I just want to do my job. I like, I like being alone. I'm just happy. Me, I have a relationship with the computer. Let me just yeah. build that up. What do you think in terms of, um, you know, inspiring these people, uh, whether, you know, they, they want it or not, how do you, how do you give them these skill sets in terms of transitioning to a leader, transitioning the network networking skills? Maybe let's assume that they want to do it, but they just don't know how. Like, I mean, what are 
what are some either the mindset or the skill sets required in order to get them to 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 be good at leading people or be good at networking? What does that what does that look like? Um, for the for the people management skills, I mean, obviously, experience is one thing, you know, but but to be able to have um, one other thing, useful thing, is actually interviewing people. Um, and actually being responsible for hiring, which is often not what they're given responsibility for. Normally, that's given somewhere else. But once you've had that responsibility, then you you, you kind of focus a lot more on okay, these different kinds of people and, and assess them in different ways, and and then you see yourself in a different way. Um, but in, in you know there's a, the, you know there's a lot of tools and methodologies about about uh, uh, management. I, I don't know of any sort of gold silver bullet there uh, or golden bullet to 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 get that done. And in, ter in terms of networking, mm. um, you know, you got to, I'd say, investing the time, but also knowing knowing your limits. So I'm quite an introverted person. So for me, networking is a bit of a, you know, a bit of a slog. Um, and so you appreciate that. And, you, you know, you appreciate the fact that you could, you're better at doing it in some, some situations than others. Um, you know, I, 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 you know I, I learned public speaking so that I could stand in front of a group of people, um, which helps a lot when you're communicating with people. Um, but you also appreciate you're gonna have to recharge your batteries. You can't be doing, you know, some kinds of networking or doing it all the time. You're just gonna wear yourself out and not do it very well. So, I, I think you know, knowing yourself, knowing your limits, knowing the, the, the ways that, that networking is gonna work well for you, and um, uh, and investing the time in it. That's awesome. In terms of you're looking at, uh, you talked about recharging your batteries, making sure you're in a good state before you go and you know speak with people publicly or you know, intimately, how do you recharge your batteries? Like, what does that look like for you in terms of making sure that you're in a positive state, making sure that you uh, have a full battery? Um, how do you, how do you do that? Sure. Uh, well, I mean, being physically well rested is, is, uh, is very useful. Um, I, I think, you know, some people can very naturally um, engage with others. It's just, it's just, second nature to them in fact they find it a bit painful if they're not doing that right my, my daughter's quite interesting in the fact that she's completely different for me she just talks to anybody about anything all the time and she's only four right so and she has absolutely no inhibitions about that whatsoever um yeah that was great and so and she but whereas for me if i you know i've realized over the years actually and, and i and there's nothing wrong with it but actually sort of thinking through it even writing it down okay what do i want to get out of this next engagement with this person um, you know what do I want to you know what do I want to talk about? Um, I used to feel that was you know be be too artificial, and you could get in, you could overscript it, of course. But I don't think there's anything wrong in thinking through um, what you want from from engagements with people, um, because you, you, that quite likely will make it better for both people, particularly if you're not naturally going to be you know just sort of um, if you're not naturally sort of a very engaged person that likes engaging with people. Well, that, yeah, if you're natural at it, then it's a, it's a, it's a honed skill that you just already do. And you like to, um, you know, you just, you don't need to cultivate it, but if you're trying to cultivate it and I, I love the idea of writing it down, thinking it out, going through the process and kind of like, so you don't go off the tracks into the, into the ditch. And, uh, and that's, that's a really powerful process. Yeah. I mean, if you look at, you know, those people with a lot of charisma, people talk about you know, Bill Clinton or uh, Nelson Mandela is having people having a lot of charisma. They could just show up and, you know, do their stuff. Um, you know, you have to appreciate, uh, maybe you're a Nelson Mandela kind of person, maybe you're not. <laughs> and so you could, you're just gonna, you know, accommodate that your, your skills are in, in, in other areas.
Yeah, and that, that makes a lot of sense. It just, yeah, it also that, that awareness of knowing where you are and where you're at, um, it, it probably helps to get an understanding and kind of see where you want to go. Is there, you talked about like assessments and stuff. I mean, are there certain like personality tests or things that you subscribe to that you like? I mean, do you like 16 personalities or is there some other um, um, assessment that you, that you really gravitate towards to understand yourself or understand others? I'll be honest with you. I, I'd say you'd be better off taking, you know, several different ones. Um, they, every, every test, I mean, they're all, a lot of them are based on the, you know, the big five personality traits, but, um, you know, they often come at it from slightly different ways. Uh, the more sort of modern ones will um, look at um, your various different personality traits in different situations. And I think that's quite important is because uh, it, it's not a fixed thing that you are the same person, um, you know, at home or in private as you are in public or as you are when you're stressed out. You will, you know, you will demonstrate different personality traits there. So I think those those ones which give a little bit more a rounded view of the person rather than just saying, okay, this person is like this all the time, mm -hmm. um, are, are more sophisticated. So I, I'm trained in one called Luminous Spark, for example, mm -hmm. um, which does that. But uh, there are... I never heard of Luminous Spark. So is it, it's, it's like a battery of different pets? Luma, yeah, Lumina does lots of different ones. So Spark is the sort of generic uh, personality uh, uh, one. But um, yeah. So that's that's that, that that's not bad, and um, but I would say you know that there are different. I've done lots of different tests in my time, and then they all taught me something. Um, and so if you have a chance, you know, take it. You always you always find out something. Yeah, it's interesting. It, it's like a, kind of like a new no BS palm reading, right? You kind of get the insights <laughs> yourself and say, oh okay, well this is how I do, and these are the things I look at. That's great. Um, that's right. I mean, because because personality, you know, this word. Is it is it, very difficult to define, uh, and so you know, particularly when you when you the, the the more you try to grasp it, the more you find it's actually you can't grab hold of this idea. Like happiness. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. So and then so you've got this very nebulous concept, and then you try to um, use these words to describe it, like extrovert or introvert or, or or what have you. And these words also have their own meanings. It might mean something a little bit different to me than it does to you. And of course, when you do it in a different language, they'll have different meanings again. And of course, in other languages, they have different personality word, you know, trait words for, for things that we haven't even thought about. Do you speak different languages? Uh, I speak Chinese, Mandarin do Chinese, yeah. Um, do you feel Not like flawlessly you by, any, by any stretch, but. <laughs> do you feel, um, I've heard people say that when they actually get fluent with another language, they get really fluent with it. Um, they actually adopt a different personality when they speak a different language. Have you noticed that to be true, or what are your thoughts around that? Yeah, it's interesting. It, it could be that I, I was uh, I was dating a girl in Japan uh, many years ago, and she actually sort of mentioned the fact that she she got a bit tired speaking Japanese to people because it was such a kind of restrictive kind of language, and you kind of had to show up with a certain kind of personality if you like. That respectful of this person and very mindful of uh, of the dynamic and social dynamics, whereas you speak in English, you know there, there was a, there was a there was a foreigner in, in in her job and she's just like it was just so easy to talk to this person because in English you don't have to worry about all this stuff. Um, so you could you could well be right. After me, I, I it's hard to um, I haven't noticed it so much in other people when it's speaking uh, uh, Mandarin, but uh, and I, I haven't noticed it myself. But it, it could be could be the case.
Yeah, there's there's definitely a respect, social responsibility in Japan. I, I, I like being the white guy in Japan with a fanny bo- fanny pack and a tank top asking for ketchup on my sushi. It's it's very fun to see. It's very, it's very fun to see their responses to see how offended they get with that because you're like, ah, who cares? But there's so much like, you know, it, it, they're a beautiful culture. Love the whole people, but it's interesting to see that the the social dynamics. And you're right. There's like, there's a there's a pressure to that performance. So that's that's super interesting. Um, with you and like with what what you're doing with um your company i mean do you have like do you have like a, a holy grail like of what you want to do um with these organizational psychology or the company in, in itself or do you have something in end goal that you're shooting for with this so uh, for me personally you know i'm all about uh, cultivating a healthy attitude toward the future and that really means that that boils down to making decisions better decisions um i would say that you know a lot of people all decisions are about the future right our lives are just flows of decisions either we with some of them we're not most of them we're not thinking about but the ones we're thinking about are the ones we can influence and so this is another aspect of having that strength of attention is to to know what we're making decisions about and what we should be making decisions about mm-hmm. and um i, I think being able to, if, if you look at people who have to think about the future to some extent, they often just don't or they shy away or they, you know, and we, we, we see a lot, you know, in the UK, for example, um, after, you know, the vote to leave the European Union in 2016, you now a couple of years later, we still hadn't left and everybody was like, well, what's going to happen? And I used to ask some small business owners that I was hanging around with, it's like, what, what do you think is going to happen? What's, what's it going to mean for you? And they'd, they'd roll their eyes and go, oh, I don't know, it's too complicated. I don't want to think about it, right? But actually, yes, okay, it was a bit complex, but there's only so many possible outcomes. And, you know, either we leave or we don't leave or it drags on. And you can look at those and, and, and break them down and you can say, well, it's going to be some variation of these. What does this mean for me? What are the threats if this happens or if that happens or if the other thing happens? What are the opportunities? And you can look into the dark hole. Even none of those options are particularly you know, none of these things were particularly uh, pleasant to think about for these people. And yet when you look into the dark hole, mm-hmm. then you realize actually maybe it's not as dark as you realize, maybe not as terrible. And actually you'll find some light in there and some possibilities, some opportunities. Yeah. Uh, and it's a little bit the same, you know, I've seen with the, with the pandemic and I don't want to sort of play down, you know, the, 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 the you know, the, the problems it's caused people and the, the terrible things that have happened. But, you know, a lot of people have been sitting around going, I don't know what's going to happen. Well, no, it's not easy to know exactly what's going to happen or when. But when you, when you really look at it, you can understand some threads of uh, or some trends, if you like, or, or threads of activity that will indicate to you what's going to happen and, uh, and have a better idea about when. You've just got to apply yourself a little bit, do a little bit of research and, and see what it means for you. Um, and, and, you know, it takes effort. Um, but there are, you know, there are ways of thinking about things and even just sitting down and, and, and just reading some stuff and, and try to synthesize that to understand what's going to happen. And, and so, yeah, there's just really a lot of things people can do, just a little bit of effort to consider the future and you can make much better, better decisions for yourself. That's awesome. And so, yeah, it seems like when people feel like it's too big, too complicated, too scary, too, you know, overwhelming, whatever that thing might be. They don't want to look at it. They don't want to focus on it. They want to avoid it. And you're saying, you know, if you focus on it and you avoid it, and you, and you, you pay attention to it, and you sit, you sit with it, then you'll, you'll naturally start to kind of 
make progress towards that, towards um, an understanding or an acceptance of the thing. When you're talking about this, and you're talking about the, you know, one of the best ways to prepare yourself to be uh, future fit is is to is to be able to focus and strengthen your attention. Um, and you talked about a couple of different ways to handle this. One, you're talking about writing things down. And what are other ways to be able to strengthen your attention to be able to kind of give you that um, the armor uh, to face up against the, uh, you know, the, the, the dragon of the future? What is that? What is that? <laughs> dragon of the future. I like it. Lots. I have lots of metaphors and references in this thing talking about narrative story design. So that's a uh, pardon me for that. But this is this is this is how I, I process things. So sure, yeah, sure. The, the dragon of the future, please. Um, uh, let me know. I'd love to learn. Well, how do you how do you armor up for that and strengthen your attention? Sure, sure. Well, it's interesting what, what you what you uh, characterize as the, as the dragon here. So maybe I'll, I'll, I'll twist it a little bit and say, well, actually, the, the if you think about the, the dragon is not really the future. Um, the, the, the future is, is kind of just there. Some people think the dragon is uncertainty. Because mm. uncertainty is, is what really creates a psychological burden. And it's really about, uh, but it's not even uncertainty. Uh, that, that is really the, the the dragon here. It's our it's our kind of immune response to uncertainty, because what happens is we don't know what's going to happen, and we have more decisions to make, all of which are uncertain. We have more information uh, on which to, to to make those decisions, uh, which sort of adds to the uncertainty because we, we we don't know what information we don't we don't have, and you know it can be the tendency is to say I'm not going to deal with it. I'm going to sh- you know I'm going to turn away. I'm going to go for black and white answers like you know build a wall or you know don't do this or you know, vote to leave. It's just too too complex, and so I think it's really about um, uh, trying to overcome that uh, sort of natural immune response to uncertainty, and say, well, look, uncertainty is there, whether you like it or not. So you can you can try and run away from it, but it's always going to be there. So you can you can look at the the, the bits of the future that you are easier to forecast. So you know, for example, the Brexit bits or, or whatever it is. Try to find out what it what's going on there and then realize that the rest of it is all possibility for you mm. if there wasn't any uncertainty then you, there's nothing there's no change if nothing changes then there's no there's no there's no kind of future right and you don't have to worry about anything it's the change and the uncertainty that comes with it that provides you the opportunity and the influence to decide what you want to make of the future uh, and so it's, it's it's about embracing the uncertainty and then saying, okay, what do I want to make for, make of the future? What can I what can I imagine? Let's uh, apply that strength of thought and imagine what kind of future do I want, and how is it different to today? So in fact, these people at the bank, for example, I asked them. I said, okay, you know, come up with various scenarios. What happens if you know the trajectory you've been on, your career trajectory? What is it? You know what's what's taking you to where you are now, and if that continues, where you're going to end up. And what happens if you know it tails off? If that trend kind of fades away, where do you end up? And I ask them. I said, you know, what's your what's your moonshot? If you could be anything, what would it be? Mm-hmm. Uh, and for those first two scenarios, you'll you'll end, they'll talk about things to do with the bank. Mm-hmm. But for that moonshot, uh, you know that you could be anything you want to be, almost never anything to do with the bank. You know, people want to be, you know, they want to run a surf shop in Australia or they want to run an art fund in, in Barcelona or something else, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, often the thing they really want to do, and some of them think they want to be the, the head of the bank in this particular area or something, but actually 
They don't. When you ask them about it, it's just real drag for them. They don't say anything positive about it. I'm like, well, why do you want to do that? Well, maybe I don't. Maybe I want to do this other thing. And so it's really about imagining it, doing those other things, and and um, uh, uh, and also thinking about the obstacles and making it happen. Got it. Got it. Got it. So it's really changing your relationship with uncertainty. It's it's you have a, one relationship which is your natural immune response, um, overcoming your your natural immune immune response to uncertainty, but then being able to change that relationship by actually saying, you know what, uncertainty is actually a good thing because I can affect it. I can have control over it. I can take action towards it. I can shift, maybe not 100%, but I can shift the probability so that the possibilities can, can, can be tilted in my favor by actually addressing the thing I fear most and actually saying that uncertainty is actually a gift and not a curse because I can, I can through my own actions, affect that change. And if things didn't change, if there was no uncertainty, I'd basically be dead because there'd be nothing ever would have changed. It'd be static so that's that's really it's really interesting yep and and so you're you're, you're looking at and it's funny i mean talking with bankers or anybody else in spaces it's like they're they're doing this thing that they you know they're in the bank they're they're making a living but maybe they they want to run a surf shop so then is there a way that you you because you're sounds like you're working with the bank you're consulting the bank you're you're you know it's a it's a there's a relationship there with with the bank is there a way that you try to tie together the progress um, with them working at the bank with their ultimate goal of working at a gift shop? Is there is there a way that you try to make those connection points or do you just naturally let it unfold and go, well, maybe you should quit the bank and then just go go get a surf shop? <laughs> no, I, you know, we explore these things. Um, you know, I'm not I'm definitely not there to persuade them not to work at a bank. I'm, I'm actually there to sort of help them figure out what they want to, what they want to achieve. Yeah. Um, and often the bank is instrumental in where they want to get to. Uh, you know, it's often given them the skills and the ambition to be able to do these other things, and often the, the finances um, to be able to do those other things. Um, and so it's, you know, it's never that they get off the you know, phone with me and then they, you know, they stop, uh, they quit the job or anything. Um, but it's, it's really, it's really uh, thinking about, okay, what, what, what is a career path? What, you know, what are the possibilities? Um, it's easy to get lazy, right, and, uh, in thinking. And just get in a rut, right? And um, you just sort of follow, you know, a, 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 you know, a career ladder, right? You know, where do you go next? Well, there's a rung above the one you're on. So, I mean, you know, it's, there's not, uh, uh, it seems to be obvious the next place to go. Whereas actually, you know, there's often more, more possibilities than that. So it's just, um, you know, it's often the case that sometimes they want to do something else in the bank as well. Um, and they, they, they kind of realize they should be pushing in some other direction than they are at the moment. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. It would be difficult to explain the people that hired you like, Hey, uh, you know, 60% of the people left to go pursue their dreams, um, <laughs> but the other 40 are really engaged. So kind of working out for you. Uh, but that makes, a, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and you talked about people getting stuck in a rut. Um, you know, what are, um, uh, questions or rituals or things to be able to one identify that they're in a rut and then two be able to take action on it. I mean, you know, is there is there some ways that people can say like become aware that they are? Oh, I'm actually I'm actually doing this thing that I'm not aware of. And then two, how do they take action on that? Do you have any thoughts around that? Yeah, well, this is uh, in some ways this goes back to the strength of concentration or, or attention mm -hmm. because all of that leads to awareness. If you're really paying attention to what's going on in, in yourself and what's around you, you, you you'll become uh, yeah, more familiar with the fact that actually I'm doing the wrong thing or I'm, I'm not doing the right thing. Uh, and so really, if, you, if you, you can almost think about a spectrum of 
decisions, if you like. And 99.999% of those things are unconscious. And then there's a small sliver at the end, which is conscious. Yeah. And what you want to do is to be keep thinking about, okay, you know, what, what are these conscious decisions I'm making? But what's next to those conscious decisions is actually unconscious that could be conscious if I wanted them to be. Mm. And, you know, it's a little bit, I mean, you wouldn't normally get up in the morning if you've got a job. You wouldn't normally get up in the morning every morning think, should I quit today? But, you know, that is a de- but it is a decision. Yeah, I mean, it is a decision you're actually implicitly making um, is to say, okay, I'm not going to quit today. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to stay and I'm going to continue it. But it's probably you should be asking yourself, it's a big thing, your, your job and what you're doing there. So you should be testing it. You should be thinking, looking at it quite critically, for example, mm. and saying, is this something I should be, should be doing or not? Yeah. Um, and so there's a lot of decisions like that that are kind of implicit. We're not, we're not, we're not think, we're thinking we're not making the decision or we're, we're, we're just continuing what we're doing. But that is a decision in itself. And so you can also decide to start paying, paying attention to those things. Yeah. Paying attention is expensive. You know, it's one of those things. It's a, it's a, it's a challenge to do. And I love the idea. I'm thinking, I'm visualizing a slider. It's like 99% uh, 99% is unconscious and you got this one little sliver and your goals are just kind of widen that out. The goal being a hundred percent conscious, but you know, never going to get there unless you're some Buddhist monk on a a meditating on a mountain for 40, 40 years or whatever. But it, it seems like it's a, that seems to be the goal. So you're talking about getting more conscious, expanding that consciousness and making and being aware of your actions um, and being able to shift that over. Um, and also, well, the, indeed, you say, as you say, it's, it's, it, it, it's impractical to, to, it's more even like just dipping into that lake of unconsciousness every now and again, just to, just to check it. it it's, it's very difficult to move that needle. Yeah. You tie yourself out. It is. It's, yeah. It'd be very overwhelming. If you get it, you know, sometimes people for various reasons, whether it's uh, tons of meditation or, psychedelics or any other types of means sometimes they become aware of everything all at once and they it's an overwhelming we can't we have to it is a survival mechanism that we have to be able to focus only on this this little area um Absolutely. so, so it's, it's it's needed um but it's also sometimes hinders us do you have a way to identify if there are um if what we're perceiving and what we're paying attention to is is hindering us or serving us in terms of this awareness like is there a way to identify that these things are um, the things I'm aware of are serving or are, are not serving me, like to be able to distinguish between is this something that is a survival pattern or this is something that is actually helping me grow into who I want to become? Well, I think, and I, I'm not good at it myself, um, but what you're doing in terms of journaling, I think is probably one of the best ways uh, because it does force you to, to consider that thing and it offers you the chance to, to, to observe, um, to see clearly what isn't working and, uh, or what is working. Um, I, you know, I tried it for a long time is, is, is sort of, you know, dividing your life up into sort of finances and relationships and career and all that kind of other stuff, and w- w- which was useful. Um, and so I'd say that that's probably one of the best tools I've, I've, I've come across. And I'd, I'd, I'd love it if I had the discipline myself to, uh, <laughs> to do it properly. But, um, I, you know, that, 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 that kind of thing where you, you get to see, you know, very clearly black and white. Um, and that, that's a little bit about framing your environment. To make it easier for yourself to 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 be aware and to change if you want to create a new a new a new habit. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's it's actually yeah I yeah I I I tend to journal like a sixteen year old girl 
you know, sad and emotional, candles lit and just write out my feelings, crying. I'm like, God, <laughs> what's going on? You know, it's, it's, it's a cathartic process, but uh, yeah. it, it's, what do you think, what are some things in terms of like, uh, that are like common thoughts or processes with psychology or organizational uh, psychology that you think are completely wrong or false? What are the, the common thought process that people might perceive about psychology or organizational psychology that just isn't true or is maybe a mainstream thought that you don't believe to be true? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, you know, and I, I uh, it, yes. Um, pro problem is I've probably been uh, dealing with those things for too long now. Adrian, um, yeah. Did any, anything comes top to mind of right now that, that there might be something, or maybe something you, you started to question or something that you, that you once believed that then you shifted your belief because of some sort of insider experience? Well, so there's, there's some things and actually it, it's interesting. And this, you know, this is part of my own sort of learning journey, but I, I actually, I just read a book by Lisa Feldman Barrett, where she talks about this issue about our brains are not for thinking they are for budgeting. And so we're all constantly predicting um, into the future to see, okay, how are these things going to play out? And actually, there's, there's, there's elements of, um, our, you know, it, it gets a bit sort of deep, but anyway, our reality or our consciousness um, that is actually predictive. And so as long as it's things pan out roughly as our brain is imagining it's going to be panning out, things are fine. And in fact, it could even trick us that, that we see things that aren't quite true or experience things that aren't quite true because it's, it's good enough and our brain goes okay it's fine uh, and it's only when stuff comes out different to our expectations that, that we that we take notice um so i think i think this idea that um our brains are for thinking you know that, that we have this sort of three-part brain of of we you know this idea that different parts of the brain are exclusively doing these different jobs um and we have these sort of three parts of the brain is is one you know the lizard brain and the limbic system and the, the prefrontal cortex all that kind of stuff i think is um is probably uh, uh misunderstood and she she does well in, in in dealing with that i'd also say things things such as memory um you know i i'd say people kind of regard memory as a record of the past and i think probably some of that comes from you know looking at you know maybe hard drives and, and, and stuff in computers but memory isn't 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 was never supposed to be a record of the past. It's more like an interpretation of our experience, and that interpretation can change, which is why our memories and stuff changes. Because you know, it's more like a lake of information that we draw on to make um, decisions about the future. And when we have an experience, then we kind of throw that into the lake, and 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 then that can reinterpret the the experiences that we've already had. And then we take that and then apply it to the to the future, and so and all of that happens in roughly the same space in our brain. So when we imagine things, we can imagine the past or we can imagine the future. And in our brains, it's it's pretty much the same place. So yeah, yeah. And so it's it, it's it's um it's quite important to realize that when you're talking about how we think about the future, um, mm. because it it it's it, uh. You know, talk, talking about that kind of workspace in our brains, that whiteboard when stuff happens and our, our working memory, you know, part of the discipline is how we focus our attention on that, what we choose to put in onto that whiteboard and how we mix those things up. 
is, uh, is quite critical. What? Because you mentioned the book a couple times. What was the name of that book? You're talking about Lisa Barrett and you, right? Lisa Feldman Barrett. Uh, she wrote a book uh, called Seven. I think it's Seven and a Half. Uh, seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain, or something like that. Is, is that quite recently? Is that this year? Yeah. And then the other book I mentioned was called The Prospective Psychology, but that's really an academic book. I'm not going <laughs> to suggest that anybody try to choke that down. I like books that have pop-ups, you know, colored pictures, bright and shiny objects. That's, that's you, you can color mind. them in yourself a little bit, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I also like it when, like, like, you know, a seasoned old man reads it to me while I'm in the bed. That's, uh, yeah. that, that's, right. that's really my, my favorite way to take in information. Um, so that's, that's beautiful. Okay, great. Um, so, uh, Graham, this is, this has been a pleasure. Is there, is there anything else you'd like to, um, let, let people know about before you tell them how to get a hold about of you and, and find out more about what you do? Um, well, no, I mean, I'd be very happy for people to connect with me on LinkedIn. Um, you'll find me there. My name is Graham Norris and I'd, I'd love to connect, connect with you on LinkedIn and, and see what you're doing. Um, that's one of the, a real great source of information for me actually is, is my LinkedIn feed. Um, and um, and then when you're there, you can see more about Super Trans Institute, where uh, we're ramping up at the moment. So um, um, so yeah, I'm I'm hoping that that's going to be uh, attractive to people as well. So beautiful, thank you, Graham. I really appreciate your time, and uh, and I'll, I'll be seeing you soon. Thank you so much. Thanks very much, Dylan. It's been great. Thank you for listening to the Heroes of Reality podcast. Check out heroesofreality.com for more episodes. While you're there, you can also take the Heroes Quiz to find out what kind of hero you are. Or, if you have a great story and want to be on the podcast, tell us why your hero's journey will inspire others. Thank you for listening. See you on the other side.